0: Section thirty two of the Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chieco. The Plain Speaker Opinions on Books, Men, and Things by William Hazlitt. Section thirty two On the Difference Between Writing and Speaking. Part two. Both Mr. Fox and Mr. Pitt, though as opposite to each other as possible, were essentially speakers, not authors, in their mode of oratory beyond the moment beyond the occasion beyond the immediate power shown astonishing as that was there was little remarkable or worth preserving in their speeches there is no thought in them that implies a habit of deep and refined reflection more than we are accustomed ordinarily to find in people of education there is no knowledge that does not lie within the reach of obvious and mechanical search and as to the powers of language the chief miracle is that a source of words so apt forcible and well arranged so copious and unfailing should have been found constantly open to express their ideas without any previous preparation considered as written style they are not far out of the common course of things and perhaps it is assuming too much and making the wonder greater than it is with a very natural love of indulging our admiration of extraordinary persons when we conceive that parliamentary speeches are in general delivered without any previous preparation they do not it is true allow of preparation at the moment but they have the preparation of the preceding night and of the night before that and of nights weeks months and years of the same endless drudgery and routine in going over the same subjects argued with some paltry difference on the same grounds practice makes perfect he who has got a speech by heart on any particular occasion cannot be much gravelled for lack of matter on any similar occasion in future not only are the topics the same the very same phrases whole batches of them are served up as the order of the day the parliamentary bead-roll of grave impertinence is twanged off in full cadence by the honourable member or his learned and honourable friend and the well-known voluminous calculable periods roll over the drowsy ears of the auditors almost before they are delivered from the vapid tongue that utters them it may appear at first sight that here are a number of persons got together picked out from the whole nation who can speak at all times upon all subjects in the most exemplary manner but the fact is they only repeat the same things over and over on the same subjects and they obtain credit for general capacity and ready wit like chaucer's monk who by having three words of latin always in his mouth passed for a great scholar a few terms could he two or three that he had learned out of some decree no wonder is he heard it all the day try them on any other subject out of doors and see how soon the extempore wit and wisdom will halt for it see how few of those who have distinguished themselves in the house of commons have done anything out of it how few that have shine there read over the collections of old debates twenty forty eighty a hundred years ago they are the same mutatis mutandis as those of yesterday you wonder to see how little has been added you grieve that so little has been lost even in their own favourite topics how much are they to seek they still talk gravely of the sinking fund in st stephen's chapel which has been for some time exploded as a juggle by mr place of charing cross and a few of the principles of adam smith which every one else had been acquainted with long since are just now beginning to dawn on the collective understanding of the two houses of parliament instead of an exuberance of sumptuous matter you have the same meagre standing dishes for every day in the year you must serve an apprenticeship to a want of originality to a suspension of thought and feeling you are in a go-cart of prejudices in a regularly constructed machine of pretexts and precedents you are not only to wear the livery of other men's thoughts but there is a house of commons jargon which must be used for everything. A man of simplicity and independence of mind cannot easily reconcile himself to all this formality and mummery. Yet woe to him that shall attempt to discard it. You can no more move against the stream of custom than you can make head against a crowd of people. The mob of lords and gentlemen will not let you speak or think but as they do. You're hemmed in, stifled, pinioned, pressed to death and if you make one false step, are trampled under the hooves of a swinish multitude. Talk of mobs! Is there any body of people that has this character in a more consummate degree than the house of commons? Is there any set of men that determines more by acclamation, and less by deliberation and individual conviction, that is moved more en masse in its aggregate capacity as brute force and physical number? that judges with more Midas ears blind and sordid without discrimination of right and wrong the greatest test of courage i can conceive is to speak truth in the house of commons i have heard sir francis burdett say things there which i could not enough admire and which he could not have ventured upon saying if besides his honesty he had not been a man of fortune of family of character ay and a very good-looking man into the bargain dr johnson had a wish to try his hand in the house of commons an elephant might as well have been introduced there in all the forms sir william curtis makes a better figure either he or the speaker onslow must have resigned the orbit of his intellect was not the one in which the intellect of the house moved by ancient privilege his commonplaces were not their commonplaces even horn took failed with all his tact his self-possession his ready talent and his long practice at the hustings he had weapons of his own with which he wished to make play and did not lay his hand upon the established levers for wielding the house of commons a succession of dry sharp-pointed sayings which come in excellently well in the pauses or quick turns of conversation do not make a speech a series of drops is not a stream besides He had been in the practice of rallying his guests and tampering with his subject, and this ironical tone did not suit his new situation. He had been used to give his own little senate laws, and when he found the resistance of the great one more than he could manage, he shrank back from the attempt, disheartened and powerless. It is nothing that a man can talk—the better, the worse it is for him—unless he can talk in trammels. He must be drilled into the regiment. He must not run out of the course. The worst thing a man can do, is to set up for a wit there, or rather, I should say, for a humorist, to say odd, out-of-the-way things, to ape a character, to play the clown or the wag in the house. This is the very forlorn hope of a parliamentary ambition. They may tolerate it till they know what you are at, but no longer. It may succeed once or twice, but the third time you will be sure to break your neck they know nothing of you or your whims nor have they time to look at a puppet-show they look only at the stopwatch, my lord we have seen a very lively sally of this sort which failed lately the house of commons is the last place where a man will draw admiration by making a jest of his own character but if he has a mind to make a jest of humanity of liberty and of common sense and decency he will succeed well enough the only person who ever hit the house between wind and water in this way who made sport for the members and kept his own dignity in our time at least was mr wyndham he carried on the traffic in parliamentary conundrums and enigmas with great eclat for more than one season he mixed up a vein of characteristic eccentricity with a succession of far fetched and curious speculations very pleasantly extremes meet and mr Wyndham overcame the obstinate attachment of his hearers to fixed opinions by the force of paradoxes he startled his bed-rid audience effectually a paradox was a treat to them on the score of novelty at least the sight of one according to the scotch proverb was good for sore eyes so mr Wyndham humoured them in the thing for once he took all sorts of commonly received doctrines and notions with an understood reserve reversed them and set up a fanciful theory of his own instead. The changes were like those in a pantomime. Ask the first old woman you meet her opinion on any subject, and you could get at the statesman's, for his would be just the contrary. He would be wiser than the old woman, at any rate. If a thing had been thought cruel, he would prove that it was humane. If barbarous, manly. If wise, foolish. If sense, nonsense. His creed was the antithesis of common sense. Loyalty accepted. Economy he could turn into ridicule, as a saving of cheese-pairings and candle-ends, and total failure was with him, negative success. He had no occasion, in thus setting up for original thinking, to inquire into the truth or falsehood of any proposition, but to ascertain whether it was currently believed in, and then to contradict it point-blank. He made the vulgar prejudices of others servile ministers to his own solecism, it was not easy always to say whether he was in jest or earnest but he contrived to hitch his extravagances into the midst of some grave debate the house had their laugh for nothing the question got into shape again and mr wyndham was allowed to have been more brilliant than ever mr wyndham was i have heard a silent man in company indeed his whole style was an artificial and studied imitation or capricious caricature of burke's bold natural discursive manner This did not imply much spontaneous power or fertility of invention. He was an intellectual posture-master, rather than a man of real elasticity and vigor of mind. Mr. Pitt was also, I believe, somewhat taciturn and reserved. There was nothing clearly in the subject matter of his speeches to connect with the ordinary topics of discourse, or with any given aspect of human life. One would expect him to be quite as much in the clouds as the automaton chess-player, or the last new opera-singer mr fox said little in private and complained that in writing he had no style so to compare great things with small jack davies the unrivaled racket racquet-player never said anything at all in company and was what is understood by a modest man when the racket was out of his hand his occupation his delight his glory that which he excelled all mankind in was gone So, when Mr. Fox had no longer to keep up the ball of debate with the floor of St. Stephen's for a stage and the world for spectators of the game, it is hardly to be wondered at that he felt a little at a loss, without his usual train of subjects, the same crowd of associations, the same spirit of competition or stimulus to extraordinary exertion. The excitement of leading in the House of Commons, which, in addition to the immediate attention and applause that follows, is a sort of whispering gallery to all Europe, must act upon the brain like brandy or laudanum upon the stomach and must in most cases produce the same debilitating effects afterwards a man's faculties must be quite exhausted his virtue gone out of him that any one accustomed all his life to the tributary roar of applause from the great council of the nation should think of dieting himself with the prospect of posthumous fame as an author is like offering a confirmed dram-drinker a glass of fair water for his morning's draught charles fox is not to be blamed for having written an indifferent history of james the second but for having written a history at all it was not his business to write a history his business was not to have made any more coalitions but he found writing so dull he thought it better to be a colleague of lord grenville he did not want style to say so is nonsense because the style of his speeches was just and fine he wanted a sounding-board in the ear of posterity to try his periods upon if he had gone to the house of commons in the morning and tried to make a speech fasting when there was nobody to hear him he might have been equally disconcerted at his want of style the habit of speaking is the habit of being heard and of wanting to be heard the habit of writing is the habit of thinking aloud but without the help of an echo the orator sees his subject in the eager looks of his auditors and feels doubly conscious doubly impressed with it in the glow of their sympathy the author can only look for encouragement in a blank piece of paper the orator feels the impulse of popular enthusiasm like proud seas under him the only pegasus the writer has to boast is the hobby-horse of his own thoughts and fancies how is he to get on them from the lash of necessity we accordingly see persons of rank and fortune continually volunteer into the service of oratory and the state but we have few authors who are not paid by the sheet i myself have heard charles fox engaged in familiar conversation it was in the louvre he was describing the pictures to two persons that were with him he spoke rapidly but very unaffectedly i remember his saying all those blues and greens and reds are the guercinos you may know them by the colours he set to opie right as to domenichino's saint jerome you will find he said though you may not be struck with it at first that there is a great deal of truth and good sense in that picture there was a person at one time a good deal with mr fox who when the opinion of the latter was asked on any subject very frequently interposed to give the answer this sort of tantalizing interruption was ingeniously enough compared by some one to walking up ludgate hill and having the spire of st martin's constantly getting in your way when you wish to see the Dome of St. Paul's. Burke, it is said, conversed as he spoke in public, and as he wrote. He was communicative, diffuse, magnificent. What is the use, said Mr. Fox, to a friend, of Sheridan's trying to swell himself out in this manner like the frog in the fable, alluding to his speech on Warren Hastings' trial? It is very well for Burke to express himself in that figurative way. It is natural to him. He talks so to his wife, to his servants, to his children. But as for sheridan he either never opens his mouth at all or if he does it is to utter some joke it is out of the question for him to affect these orientalisms burke once came into st joshua reynolds painting-room when one of his pupils was sitting for one of the sons of count ugolino this gentleman was personally introduced to him ah then said burke i find that mr northcote has not only a head that would do for titian to paint but is himself a painter At another time, he came in when Goldsmith was there, and poured forth such a torrent of violent personal abuse against the king, that they got into high words, and Goldsmith threatened to leave the room if he did not desist. Goldsmith bore testimony to his powers of conversation. Speaking of Johnson, he said, does he wind into a subject like a serpent, as Burke does? With respect to his facility in composition, there are contradictory accounts it has been stated by some that he wrote out a plain sketch first like a sort of dead colouring and added the ornaments and tropes afterwards i have been assured by a person who had the best means of knowing that the letter to a noble lord the most rapid impetuous glancing and sportive of all his works was printed off and the proof sent to him and that it was returned to the printing office with so many alterations and passages interlined that the compositors refused to correct it as it was took the whole matter in pieces and reset the copy this looks like elaboration and afterthought it was also one of burke's latest compositions a regularly bred speaker would have made up his mind beforehand but burke's mind being as originally constituted and by its first bias that of an author never became set it was in further search and progress it had an internal spring left it was not tied down to the printer's form it could not still project itself into new beauties and explore strange regions from the unwearied impulse of its own delight or curiosity perhaps among the passages interlined in this case were the description of the duke of bedford as the leviathan among all the creatures of the crown the catalogue raisonne of the abb csi pigeon-holes or the comparison of the english monarchy to the proud keep of windsor with its double belt of kindred and coeval towers were these to be given up if he had had to make his defence of his pension in the house of lords they would not have been ready in time it appears and besides would have been too difficult of execution on the spot a speaker must not set his heart on such forbidden fruit but mr burke was an author and the press did not shut the gates of genius on mankind a set of oratorical flourishes indeed is soon exhausted and is generally all that the extempore speaker can safely aspire to not so with the resources of art or nature which are inexhaustible and which the writer has time to seek out to embody and to fit into shape and use if he has the strength the courage and patience to do so there is then a certain range of thought and expression beyond the regular rhetorical routine on which the author to vindicate his title must trench somewhat freely the proof that this is understood to be so is that what is called an oratorical style is exploded from all good writing that we immediately lay down an article even in a common newspaper in which such phrases occur as the angel of reform the drooping genius of albion and that a very brilliant speech at a loyal dinner-party makes a very flimsy insipid pamphlet the orator has to get up for a certain occasion a striking compilation of partial topics which to leave no rubs or botches in the work must be pretty familiar as well as palatable to his hearers and in doing this he may avail himself of all the resources of an artificial memory the writer must be original or he is nothing is not to take up with ready-made goods for he has time allowed him to create his own materials and to make novel combinations of thought and fancy to contend with unforeseen difficulties of style and execution while we look on and admire the growing work in secret and at leisure there is a degree of finishing as well as of solid strength in writing which is not to be got at every day and we can wait for perfection the author owes a debt to truth and nature which he cannot satisfy at sight but he has pawned his head on redeeming it it is not a string of clap traps to answer a temporary or party purpose violent vulgar and illiberal but general and lasting truth that we require at his hands we go to him as pupils not as partisans we have a right to expect from him profounder views of things finer observations more ingenious illustrations happier and bolder expressions he is to give the choice and picked results of a whole life of study what he has struck out in his most felicitous moods has treasured up with most pride has labored to bring to light with most anxiety and confidence of success he may turn a period in his head fifty different ways so that it comes out smooth and round at last he may have caught a glimpse of a simile and it may have vanished again let him be on the watch for it, as the idle boy watches for the lurking place of the adder. We can wait. He is not satisfied with the reason he has offered for something. Let him wait till he finds a better reason. There is some word, some phrase, some idiom that expresses a particular idea better than any other. But he cannot for the life of him recollect it. Let him wait till he does. Is it strange that among twenty thousand words in the English language... The one of all others that he most needs should have escaped him there are more things in nature than there are words in the english language and he must not expect to lay rash hands on them all at once learn to write slow all other graces will follow in their proper places you allow a writer a year to think of a subject he should not put you off with a truism at last you allow him a year more to find out words for his thoughts he should not give us an echo of all the fine things that have been said a hundred times all authors however are not so squeamish but take up with words and ideas as they find them delivered down to them happy are they who write latin verses who copy the style of dr johnson who hold up the phrase of ancient pistol they do not trouble themselves with those hair-breadth distinctions of thought or meaning that puzzle nicer heads let us leave them to their repose a person in habits of composition often hesitates in conversation for a particular word it is because he is in search of the best word and that he cannot hit upon in writing he would stop till it came it is not true however that the scholar could avail himself of a more ordinary word if he chose or readily acquire a command of ordinary language for his associations are habitually intense not vague and shallow and words occur to him only as tallies to certain modifications of feeling they are links in the chain of thought his imagination is fastidious and rejects all those that are of no mark or likelihood certain words are in his mind indissolubly wedded to certain things and none are admitted at the levee of his thoughts but those of which the bands have been solemnized with scrupulous propriety again the student finds a stimulus to literary exertion not in the immediate eclat of his undertaking but in the difficulty of his subject and the progressive nature of his task he is not wound up to a sudden and extraordinary effort of presence of mind but is for ever awake to the silent influxes of things and his life is one long labor are there no sweeteners of his toil no reflections in the absence of popular applause or social indulgence to cheer him on his way let the reader judge his pleasure is the counterpart of and borrowed from the same source as the writers a man does not read out of vanity nor in company but to amuse his own thoughts if the reader from disinterested and merely intellectual motives relishes an author's fancies and good-nights the last may be supposed to have relished them no less if he laughs at a joke the inventor chuckled over it to the full as much if he is delighted with a phrase he may be sure the writer jumped at it if he is pleased to cull a straggling flower from the page He may believe that it was plucked with no less fondness from the face of nature. Does he fasten with gathering brow and looks intent on some difficult speculation? He may be convinced that the writer thought it a fine thing to split his brain in solving so curious a problem, and to publish his discovery to the world. There is some satisfaction in the contemplation of power. There is also a little pride in the conscious possession of it. With what pleasure do we read books? if authors could but feel this or remember what they themselves once felt they would need no other temptation to persevere to conclude this account with what perhaps i ought to have set out with a definition of the character of an author there are persons who in society in public intercourse feel no excitement dull as the lake that slumbers in the storm but who when left alone can lash themselves into a foam they are never less alone than when alone Mount them on a dinner-table, and they have nothing to say. Shut them up in a room by themselves, and they are inspired. They are made fierce with dark keeping. In revenge for being tongue-tied, a torrent of words flows from their pens, and the storm, which was so long collecting, comes down apace. It never rains, but it pours. Is not this strange, unaccountable? not at all so they have a real interest a real knowledge of the subject and they cannot summon up all that interest or bring all that knowledge to bear while they have anything else to attend to till they can do justice to the feeling they have they can do nothing for this they look into their own minds not in the faces of a gaping multitude what they would say if they could does not lie at the orifices of the mouth ready for delivery but is wrapped in the folds of the heart and registered in the chambers of the brain in the sacred cause of truth that stirs them they would put their whole strength their whole being into requisition and as it implies a greater effort to drag their words and ideas from their lurking places so there is no end when they are once set in motion the whole of a man's thoughts and feelings cannot lie on the surface made up for use but the whole must be a greater quantity a mightier power if they could be got at layer under layer and brought into play by the levers of imagination and reflection such a person then sees further and feels deeper than most others he plucks up an argument by the roots he tears out the very heart of his subject he has more pride in conquering the difficulties of a question than vanity in courting the favour of an audience he wishes to satisfy himself before he pretends to enlighten the public he takes an interest in things in the abstract more than by common consent nature is his mistress truth his idol the contemplation of a pure idea is the ruling passion of his breast the intervention of other people's notions the being the immediate object of their censure or their praise puts him out what will tell what will produce an effect he cares little about and therefore he produces the greatest the personal is to him an impertinence so he conceals himself and writes solitude becomes his glittering bride and airy thoughts his children Such a one is a true author, and not a member of any debating club, or dilettante, society, whatever. Footnote. I have omitted to dwell on some other differences of body and mind that often prevent the same person from shining in both capacities of speaker and writer. There are natural impediments to public speaking, such as the want of a strong voice and steady nerves. A high authority of the present day, Mr. Canning, has thought this a matter of so much importance that he goes so far as even to let it affect the constitution of parliament and conceives that gentlemen who have not bold foreheads and brazen lungs but modest pretensions and patriotic views should be allowed to creep into the great assembly of the nation through the avenue of closed boroughs and not to be called upon to face the storms of the hustings in this point of view Stenter was a man of genius, and a noisy jack pudding may cut a considerable figure in the political house that Jack built. I fancy Mr C Wynne is the only person in the kingdom who has fully made up his mind that a total defect of voice is the most necessary qualification for a speaker of the House of Commons. thirty two